You can beat something with nothing. That is an old one. And it's particularly true for us libertarians when we're trying to campaign politically. How do you win people over to the libertarian position, especially people in mainstream politics, when um, all you've got to say is, yeah, we don't want to give you anything. In fact, anything you're getting from the government at the moment is probably something, well, almost certainly something we want to take away from you. How do you do that? How do we win the war of ideas? I don't know. I'm going to float out some thoughts. I've got some ideas. Um, and I'd obviously love to hear from you. By the way, we've been doing great hits on the show recently. Many of our shows do over a thousand listens on SoundCloud. Still, some people choose to tune in on YouTube, which is great. Um, you might be wondering why Tom isn't here. For those of you who are just listening, you might have assumed he was going to come in in a second. He's not. He's in Corfu. Lucky him. Uh, but I'm here in Scotland and I decided that this is something that's been knocking about in my mind. And uh, I, after going to the Libertarian Party Conference UK and uh, speaking to a speaker from the IEA and all sorts of things. So how do you beat something with nothing? I mean, there's all sorts of things we could start with about personal responsibility and the hero heroism of taking your life into your own hands and the self-respect you might win for being responsible. And um, I love Jordan Peterson's approach of tidy your own room, get your house sorted, get get and um, become responsible so that when there's a death in the family, you can be the one who can arrange the funeral. You take the stress off other people to have to fill those shoes. The, the, the better care you take care of yourself, the, the more room you've got for other people. Um, I guess uh, that, that's a pretty, that's more like of a personal philosophy. As you know, there's something that I'm interested in. That's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, Procrastination Annihilation, um, to help people, to help equip people to take responsibility for themselves, to, for, for, for the attainment of their goals, of their dreams. In a, in a sense, I guess I'm quite in, in a native objectivist in terms of I agree with Rand that the purpose of a man's life is the, or a woman's is the fulfillment of their own happiness, you know. And that's a hard sell to people at the moment for a ton of reasons. Uh, one is people haven't been brought up to be capable of taking responsibility for themselves. I mean, if you were born a few hundred years ago, you yeah, you'd work 57 hours or God knows how many a week on a farm, almost certainly, unless you were a member of the aristocracy. But you'd be very skilled at everything you needed to do to work on the farm. And as a consequence of that, you'd very rarely feel incapable of taking on the challenges that life throws at you. Um, because there wouldn't be that many. I mean, there would be, I mean, death, old age, um, the death of children, which would happen regularly um, because obviously we couldn't keep babies alive through the winter as often as we can now. Um, there, there'd be emotional challenges, but you don't have the challenge of thinking, what the fuck am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do with this brain? What am I going to do with my talents, right? This is the freedom we have. 
mixed blessing, an existential nightmare for many people. I've said this before, but you know, if you were a giraffe, you'd have no thought in your head of becoming a lion. If you're a lion, you don't think I could be an elephant, but because uh, God, so to speak, has drawn a, a bottom line for everyone, but no top line, whatever you're doing, you could be doing more. You could have a healthier body. Maybe you could could have got a hotter girlfriend or maybe one that you agree with more. And um, maybe, um, you know, someone rejected you and you, you got sad about it and you ended up with your partner. And even though you think they're a really great person, you sometimes wonder if you really made the right choice. Um, that wasn't the case for you in the past because you married who your parents said. Do you know what I mean? What else? Well, quite apart from having the right to vote, you know, people talk about, oh, we've only recently had the right to vote. That's just, that's a tiny responsibility compared to being able to choose where you live. For most of human history, unless you're an aristocrat, there's a good chance that you're going to live and die where your parents lived and died. So we've got all of these choices to make and all of this freedom and we don't know what to do with that. Well, a lot of people don't know what to do with that. So it's hard to sell them personal responsibility. Now you could argue, and I would argue that if not for the ridiculous what passes for education in Western society, there's a ton of um, evidence on how people best learn. I, I mentioned this before, but I do have a presentation on YouTube called Anti-Empirical Education, which you could, it's only really short. I might add it to the Scottish Liberty podcast feed, the SoundCloud feed, because when I put short ones up, they do really well. You guys seem to like short media. I don't need to go into that. Uh, Alfie Cohen, A-L-F-I-E-K-O-H-N, He's got, he's a really beautiful speaker. A few hours, listen to him on YouTube. All sorts of, he presents all sorts of data on how people best learn and how the schools do the opposite of it. Um, in the 60s, A.S. Neil brought out a book called Summerhill. That really influenced me. There is uh, the book, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk, Parent Effectiveness Training, tons of stuff. I used the stuff in those books when I was a, uh, classroom assistant which I volunteered as a classroom assistant as part of my undergraduate degree and I know they work I, I know those approaches work and um, from first-hand experience they work better than the teachers who had three four years at uni were able to I was able to handle the kids better than they were they, they put me with difficult kids this isn't about aggrandizing Anthony Samroff it's about the ideas they're out there they've been around for decades What's the education system done? So you could argue that in a sane system where you didn't have this mandatory education system, people would have to, as youngsters, you know, the, you might have seen, what's that called? Parks and Rec, that sitcom. The first few seasons are pretty good. It goes downhill. Um, there's a libertarian character in it, Ron Swanson, who says, child labor laws are ruining this country. You'd go out to work. A lot of the stuff that um, adults do and think of as boring ass jobs are not boring to children. Making a ton of photocopies 
at your dad's work is not boring to a child, but I mean, you've basically got a serial killer in waiting if that's all you have to do as an adult. You get experience. You know, kids like to feel like adults. If you take it back to our history and um, tribal cultures, there were four adults for every child. So this idea of children learning horizontally how to live from other children, it's, it's not ideal. They need to be around people who are older than them. Kids spell love, T-I-M-E. How is someone with a classroom of 30 kids going to give everyone the individual attention they need? What children need is someone to be around them to say, hey, what, you, what are you interested in? Tell me about it. What, what do you like? If they, like a, if they play the computer too much, they don't need, there's a reason why, because they don't find the world worth engaging with, you know, and they need someone to say, hey, what's that you're playing? Tell me about it. Why don't you teach me how to play the game? What do you like about this game? To, to be interested in them, to bring them alive, you know. I've seen it. And you can't get that in a classroom of 30. You need attention. And basically what I do as a counsellor, um, it's like I see very talented people, broadly speaking, really, really intelligent. And it's like they're vitamin deficient. And the vitamin they're deficient in is attention, is quality, high quality attention. So I'm like giving them a injection of high strength high quality attention i really give a shit for that hour i'm really with them and i really care and it's like water and nutrients to a plant that's a bit droopy you know sometimes your cat your plants in the kitchen have got droopy and you you water them and they they shoot right up and i see that people blossom even as adults all sorts of new things come out of them when they get the quality of attention they need. So we could avoid a lot of disaster in that respect by making sure that children get enough attention. I see it all the time, even between adults. Like one of the, one of the problems I see in my parents' house when I go and visit them is whenever they're talking to each other, they're always doing something else at the same time, cleaning or cooking or chopping something they're never giving each other their full attention and that means they're more likely to argue and I notice it as well I'm more likely to argue with either of one of them when we're both doing something else and trying to have a conversation at the same time people's they people do it with their partner people do it with their kids um yeah and if you want your relationships to be really meaningful then turn off the devices like I and pay attention. If someone phones me when I'm talking to someone, I don't answer the phone, and uh, I don't take it out of my pocket until they're finished talking. Um, and then, then I might say, "Excuse me, I just got a call. Can I check it?" I, I'm, I'm not moralizing. I hope it doesn't come across that way. I'm just going in free flow. I didn't think I'd spend as much time on this section as I have, but that's what I've got to say about selling libertarianism on the philosophy of personal responsibility and heroism it's like okay all of those things are basically a luxury and you need to know that when you engage with people because 
morality is a luxury. If you're, if you're living on an island starving to death and you're not going to care about the NAP, most people aren't. You're just going to stab the other person and eat them eventually. Or you, you might not. You might die to death. <laughs> you might starve to death instead. But then they might eat you. So morality, like it's a silly, well, I don't know if it's a silly example or not, but put it this way, starving Brazilians aren't thinking about the long-term health of the planet when they cut down the rainforest now, are they? Why? Because they need to make money. So being a moral person is a luxury of civilization. Um, in the old days, they used to expose children that they couldn't feed. They didn't have enough money to feed the baby, so they just put it outside and let it die. Well, because they didn't have the resources. It was either that baby died or one of their older kids died. So what are you going to do? It's uh, horrendous, but that was the that was the need of the time, and you, you did what you need to do. So yeah, we do need to talk about the education system. We need to be well informed about it. I would say, and uh, you should know what's wrong with that. Exist because it's the kind of conversation that you might start on, and you might find a lot of common ground with people on the left or or I don't know, whoever you're trying to. They, almost everyone agrees that we need education reform. Very few people think the schools are perfect the way they are, or, or it's just grand. You know, most people have thousands of them because most people have been in them, and they don't understand. Um, it's more humanistic. So that's a good place to start. A lot of people will not want to, as they perceive it, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Personally, I think, like, it's not bathwater. It's, uh, oh, sorry, it's, it's, there's no baby in the bathwater. The bath, bath, the baby is a turd sandwich with turd as the spread. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, pretty much it's bad it's not just bad because people are just learning to take orders and do what they're told when they're told although it is that it's not just bad because people are learning facts and you don't really need a lot of facts to succeed in the world you need competency you need skills uh, because especially now because you've got wikipedia to get all the facts you need um, and of course scottish liberty podcast to get all the facts you need um, it's bad because of the opportunity cost. People aren't going out and getting competent. They're not getting uh, the meaning. The work you do in school is not meaningful work, right? You fill out a worksheet, and you put it in the bin after you work it, or you, you take it home and then put it in the bin. You um, write an essay, your teacher reads it and gives it back to you. They don't, they're not teaching you to write an essay and then submit it or to a blog where people can read it. To give you some pride, right? You're not teaching you to make stuff, to put your shelves up, to make a table so that you can give it away to your auntie, and then you'll be able to see it every time you go on. Everything, like like geometry, can be learned through woodwork. You know, there's I, I, there, I know some someone might come on pedantically and say, oh, well, there's lots that you can, but do you know what I mean? I'm just giving examples, right? Um. You can you can learn everything. The, the main things that you learn in school which are useful are reading, writing, and arithmetic. That's about the only useful things that school teaches you, as far as I'm concerned. Um, not 
obviously I exaggerate, but you get it. Now, those things can be learned through engaging with meaningful activities, not just work for work's sake. That is alienating. You know, when Marx talks about alienated labour, that's alienated school children. So, anyway, I'm not a pedagogue. I'm not an expert on this stuff. It's just something that I took an ardent interest in. You can read more. I'm sure you, I'm sure we we follow each other well so far. So you need to talk to people about how children are, how we in this society are not prepared for the challenges of life, for the challenges of choosing a partner, for the challenges of uh, finding meaningful work. I mean, the fact that people can come out of 11 to 13 years of mandatory ed education and not find a minimum wage job is itself a complete indictment of the education system. And I'm not one of these people who says the purpose of education is to help people get a job. No, you know, as you know, I'm a knowledge of file. I'm a knowledge of war. I like to I like to learn as much as possible. But you know what? I'd probably be self-motivated to learn that stuff. Um, you, and especially now when all the resources are at your disposal. Um, where was I going with that? Um, uh, the, but the thing is, it's enough time. It's enough time. As I've said before, it's enough time to become a concert pianist 11 to 13 years. So it's enough time to learn some skills that will give you a decent job and you don't come out thinking, oh, the free market is rubbish because I can't get ahead in the free market. Why do they blame the free market for that? Why don't they blame the terrible schools that they were forced to go to for not preparing them for the challenge of entering the free market? So what do you need to do to be happy? You need to know how to take care of your body and eat well. Do you know what your gallbladder does? I don't. I'm sure someone's told me at one point. Why don't I know what the components of my own body do? Why didn't someone teach me that? Take care of your own body, um, to both in terms of exercise and diet you need to other because if you you've got ill health and everything else goes you need to know how to be able to learn things you need to have an opportunity to persist and suck at something and have someone encourage you and say do you know what everyone sucks when they take up the keyboard don't worry about it everyone sucks when they do x y and z um uh, that that's normal to someone to encourage you to go through sucking to get decent at something because if you've done that three or four times with different skills your mindset changes i've noticed this even in the last couple of years since turned 30 i've taken up a bunch of stuff that i sucked at including yoga including stand-up comedy um uh, uh an improv I started trying that out a couple of years ago and I stopped, but I started again. But I saw myself getting better. Um, you know, grab a Rubik's Cube and learn how to solve the wee bastard. Um, just, for, just for an example, there's all sorts of it, but people need the experience of taking practical skills and sucking at them and then learning how to be good at them, to feel like they're empowered because you come out of, a lot of people, myself included, came out of school feeling terrified of making mistakes with anything. Uh, and I, I've been in a process of deconditioning that. The more skills you learn to suck at, from, to go from sucking at to being pretty decent at, the more confident you are in your competence to face life. 
I remember Nathaniel Brand and the psychologist who is a lover of Ayn Rand for three years talking about the psychology of self-esteem. And he said, that he, one of the things he said is like feeling, I'm trying to remember his turn of phrase, appropriate to life, that you're appropriate to life, that you can handle the challenges. So that's the first thing, right? How do we answer? We, we need to turn the spotlight, we need to start by turning the spotlight on what people aren't that they could have been and how the state is involved in making them incompetent. Now, then, because people are, but because people talk about poverty a lot, I think it's really important for libertarians to be talking about poverty uh, and they're not doing it enough. I have a discussion of it in my free book, Universal Basic Income For and Against. Please download it from my website, beyourselfandloveit.com forward slash UBI, because over a thousand people listen to this podcast. And guess what? A lot less than a thousand books have been downloaded, despite me having been on Tom Wood's show to promote it and a couple of other places. I've got some, I've got some other ones coming up. Um, download the book. It's short. You'll enjoy it. I promise you. And you need it. You need it to set. You need to send it to your lefty friends. And uh, whenever anyone comes up on Facebook um, talking about the UBI, uh, send them a copy of the ebook. You, you, um, and I think that it's it's worthwhile. Otherwise, I wouldn't be plugging it. Um, in fact, I've got a little bit of news about it. I'll save it for the end, right? So I think that people should be taught that libertarians have to have enough media about poverty um, because that's what people, the poor, the poor, the poor, the poor. You need to take the temperature outside. What are people, the reason why I use the universal basic income as a starting point is, I was like, well, why do people support the universal basic income? Because they like the idea of living in a society where no one falls through the cracks, right? So I want to use that, the fact that it's a hot topic to get people into libertarian ideas. So um, one of these days I'm going to have to do a presentation like this on inequality because that's a big one right now. And there are some other resources that are really good. But I think um, I want to give you the Anthony Samroff take on it because I'm that arrogant. So one of these times when when Tam is away, I'll I'll prepare one if you guys but you guys you know tell me what you're interested in hearing and and we really love talking to you guys but we very rarely hear from you so um you know i guess that means we're doing a good job because <laughs> people are always willing to get in touch oh you got that fact wrong or you said something i disagree with no it only happens sometimes but we i like that too you know um but we barely hear from you so it's kind of a little bit of a one-way street you can come onto YouTube anytime and leave a comment. I'm on Facebook. You can send me a message on Facebook. I'd love to hear from you. Tom's not on Facebook, but if you want me to pass something on to him, I will. So now the interesting thing is we've had over maybe 250 years of unprecedented economic growth. Um, for most of recorded history, up until the agricultural revolution, Almost everyone was living on the equivalent of under $3 a day. And then it started to shoot up at the end of the 1700s. And now 
the average world income is like $33 a day. And that is taking into account countries like Liberia and Afghanistan, you know, that are really poor. So if you live in France or Finland or Japan, you're maybe earning like $100 a day. So that's, you know, compare that to $3 a day. So what actually happened, I mean, we can talk, I can go into this in as much or as little detail, but the machines basically, that's what did it. Because um, they let one person do as many things as several people have done. And they, people become more productive and leftists think that capitalists get to choose what to pay their workers, but they don't. Um, because I get this machine that makes you twice as valuable as you are without the machine. If I don't start paying you more, someone else comes into the market and they pay you more. So uh, finally, as an entrepreneur, if I don't want to have to keep on having a high staff turnover, I need to increase your wages, whether I like it or not. So between 1870 and 1929, the average number of work hours worked per person went from 61 hours a week to 48 hours. So that's like... Yeah, and then by 1970, it was 42. So we're, we're talking about a 19 hours less. Yeah, I could actually just, let's see what we've got here. Um, the UK, we've got, we work around 37 hours. I think you guys in America, you work a bit more than us, 38.6. Okay, still, we're looking at a huge reduction from 61 hours to 37. That's like, okay, people have leisure time. That's another thing I mentioned we're not prepared for. We've got so much damn leisure time compared to what we used to. Like, you know, those Marxists, like, in the early 19th century, 20th century, they're really like, well, here's what our problem with capitalism, one of our problems with capitalism, all the time at work, and then that affects the way they think. That's what the Frankfurt School believed, right? It's not just about work. It's about the way that the capitalist mode of production affects human psychology. That's what we're trying to say. I don't know if Marx said that. I think it might have been there. No, he definitely did. He did. So he had a new rendering. No, I mean, it's probably maybe one of the most compelling arguments for socialism. If you have socialism, it's like, well, the thing is having people work like this is not just about work, it affects the whole society. I don't personally accept that that justifies socialism. I mean, I think socialism's worse, obviously, because you put them in these environments. But also, let's bring it back to the soul thing. Why do they why do people here today still have to work in factories? Or um, why is it that the is it necessary for a capitalist workplace to even be authoritarian? For example, when you go through 11, 13 years of education uh, where you're bossed around and told what to do and when to do it, can I go to the toilet, please? You're basically trained for hierarchy. Now, maybe I'm not saying that hierarchy is necessarily bad, but this is a very authoritarian version of a hierarchy. And um, it could be that if you're like... There's evidence to suggest that people best learn in a cooperative le learning environment rather than everyone doing their own work kind of thing. So supposing you've got a lot of um, 
exposure to that, does that then change the 11 to 13 years? Does that then change the capitalist workplace? Are the capitalists not just looking at the people they have and going, well, we're not going to um, employ a bunch of psychologists to undo 13 years of conditioning. Like the best way to get value out of these people and the best way, the only way I know how to get value out of these people is to do what I've always known how to do, which is um, to organize the organization in a pyramid, right? It could be, uh, and I recommend the book Maverick by Ricardo Semler. And um, a lot of people have tried these. There's another guy as well. What's his name? Damn. He's got a great presentation on YouTube called so the new paradigm in business, Tim, someone, um, he wrote a book called True Purpose about finding your life's purpose. That one presentation he does on YouTube, the new paradigm in business, really, really good. He goes into businesses and tries to get them to organize around the less hierarchical structure because that was possible in the past where the bosses didn't need to have such a huge level of information but now that the amount of information involved in business is so vast and um, he doesn't he he says that it's impossible and it's too stressful for the bosses now he says when they try and bring in the new paradigm in business as he sees it there's a bunch of tenants and he gets the businesses to just adopt them one by one according to the ones they need the most and he says over the process it might take a couple of years to transform the business and they always really like the results in the end. But over the process, maybe like a ton of employees tend to leave because they just can't hack it. They're just used to the hierarchical thing. Or maybe that's just the way they, their mind functions. Maybe it's not conditioning. We don't know. We don't have enough information. Not enough of it's been tested. It's an empirical question. I know that's a bit triggering for us Austrian economists, but it is. So, I see I, I lose track, but I enjoy talking about this stuff immensely. So if you don't like it, let me know. <laughs> uh, but, and I really didn't like doing them on my own at first because it's so much easier to bounce off someone. But I'm really proud of all the episodes I've done on my own. Um, I think that obviously Tom, um, he just brings a lot of humour to the show. and He's just passionate, you know. He's funny, he's passionate, he thinks things that I don't think of. And I, I it's much easier to do the show with him around, but I'm I'm proud of these ones too. So let me think. Yeah, so we're basically dealing with a biased market. This is this point cannot be stressed enough. What the leftists don't what the leftists are seeing is not the free market at work. So, but they're sure they are. And there's this thing I want to do a show on as well, the lefty fallacy. And the lefty fallacy, as I call it, um, feel free to use it, that term whenever you see someone using it. Uh, if you credit me, all the better. Is they identify problems with the world that we live in and they say, look at what capitalism is doing. And then they have what that's under one definition of capitalism, which is what we have now. And then they say, as a consequence of that, free markets are bad, <laughs> right? They use their criticisms of what we have now to attack the free market, even though what we have now isn't a free market. The government sets the interest rates through the central banks. 
it prints the money. Um, so there's your free market. First of all, the currency is controlled by the, you know, everything is taxed and regulated. I don't need to really lecture you guys on this. That's more in case you send this to one of your friends, I guess, who's on the left. If it articulates something that you'd like to articulate, then you can share it. Um, so many of the richest corporations have got massive handouts from government. Google, over 600 million. You know, uh, would it be dominant? Would would Google be dominant if not for those handouts? Would um, Microsoft and Apple be dominant if not all the patents that the government has given them? The government's involved. You know, it's a point to make a, about inequality. It's like, would the rich be so much richer if not for being in bed with the government? I don't. You know, I think that people like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs would still be very successful in a free market because they're extraordinarily competent. But, you know, would the disparity be so big? I don't I don't know. So I don't know if we should be. I, I know one of the main arguments is what's wrong with inequality? Like me having a um, fighter jet is <laughs> it's going to buy a fighter jet, but maybe just because it looks badass and um, doesn't stop some Brazilian from getting fed. Yes, that's true, but people do find it unpalatable. Maybe they're wrong to find it unpalatable. You can make me the argument to think that some people are spending tons of money cheating their swimming pool all around while people are starving in Africa. And I guess I'm sympathetic. I mean, I, I agree it's not really their fault. It's not their problem. The question is, well, you can answer me is how much should you step into the other person's shoes and try to argue their values? Is that too much of a compromise? Should you, instead of saying there so much inequality without crony capitalism, should you be saying that? Because then you're acknowledging that uh, there might be something wrong with equality, or you should, should you be arguing with them to try and get them to see why inequality isn't a bad thing? I'd like to know your opinion. Uh, personally, I think, you know, a boxer has a right jab and a left jab. Do you know what I mean? You can make both cases. They're not exclusive. That's why I write, by the way, because a lot of the time when I read stuff, I'm like, you're only making a couple of the arguments. I want to see all of the arguments. Um, in fact, on that point, uh, here I might as well come to the news. Uh, a few years ago, I wrote a article called "Why Mechanization Doesn't Cause Unemployment," and I adapted and improved on that article for one section of the UBI book. Now, Gene Epstein recently—you might know him—he runs the Soho Farm in New York. I assume you know him because most of our fans came from the Tom Woods show, from hearing me and Tom. And, and so on and so forth. So he read the book and he said that my treatment of the automation question is the best he's seen and that if he is going to, if anyone brings it up, he would refer them to my treatment of it, which is a great honour. I'm really kind. But what I'm even more pleased about, about that is that's the reason why I wrote that article. I wanted to, in the first place, four years ago, I wanted a completely comprehensive treatment of it. 
he thought of one argument that I hadn't included. So annoying. But if I update the, the book, I'll put that argument in it as well. Now, this is, I don't know if I want to announce this yet because it's rumour mill news, but I'm going to because I've got a massive ego. Um, so uh, he proposed that I debate someone on the question of the Soho Forum next year. So that would be fucking cool. I might be going to New York again next year to, to do that. Um, we don't know who I might be going up against. Hopefully that's not uh, naughty, me breaking the news. It'd be more embarrassing if the, if the offer falls through and it, and it never happens. But there you go. That's my happy news this week. Okay, so I was talking about how the number of hours people fell, people work fell. And well, the reason why I was so on the figures is because, say, between 1970 and now, well, you know, we're making maybe working maybe four or five hours less on average. That's not really a lot when you compare the figure of 1870 to 1929 when the hours fell by 13 on average, right? That's what I mean to highlight, or say 1870 and 1970 is a better figure because during that 100 years, you saw a 19 hours difference. So, so why though? Why? Because since 1970, we've got faster computers, um, internet, we've got all these technologies. You don't have to buy stuff you used to have to buy because you get it all on your laptop, you know, if you calculator, CD player, DVD player, like you just watch videos, you know, everything's dematerialized. Um, you know what I mean? There's so much stuff invented in the last 45 years that you'd think that you'd be able to make a living working 30 hours or 25 hours, 20 hours. Who knows? Because everything's so cheap. Now, it might be that people buy more stuff, but that's probably part of it. I mean, most people have got a library in their house. The reason why they had universities in the first place was books were bloody expensive. So they put them all in the same place beside the university, right? If that's all it was, there's still be some people who just worked 16 hours and were really frugal about it, about life, okay? Something's weird. Something weird is going on. Given how much stuff, 45 years, this is coming on to what do we propose, right? I'd say, you know, the central banks printing money, you know, that must be a major factor because why do we pay so much taxes today? Like you guys in the States, the, the majority of our audience, right? Um, your country declared independence because of a, what would could be considered today a tiny tax. People tolerate a huge rate of taxation because they're wealthy. They don't miss as much. Um, in 1776, a small tax was a huge proportion of your income. Uh, the UK's wars in Europe, including up to and including their war in Napoleon, were funded through the corn laws, the tariffs on the importation of grains, at a time when the people in this country 
their main expenditure was on grains, on cereals, on bread and stuff like that. Wow. So you're basically taxing the poorest people to go for some adventures in, 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 in Europe, okay, to, to fund imperialism. That would have been a, that, that would have been a, you can mention that next time someone mentions the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> you know, but what about the government making people poor? Um, making poor people poorer. So they print money. You hear this all the time in America that since 1913, when the Federal Reserve was instituted, the value of the dollar has gone down by 96%. So that, that's maybe one of the reasons why is that why we're not working less, right? I'm talking about, the, the reason why am I talking about this? Because this is the kind of thing that you can say, look, everyone would be richer under libertarianism. You need, to tell, you need to give me feedback on these arguments. Like, I don't know if this is the best way to go about it. This is me trying to project into the position of, say, my younger self. Some of you came from the right. You didn't come from the left. Would this do any, you need to tell me, would this do anything for you at all? I know that the central banks thing is something that started me thinking because I didn't understand why the left didn't talk about it. It seemed like such a blatant abuse. Okay. So, you know about, you. I mean, libertarians aren't really done talking about the Fed. I mean, it's something that we're kind of known for. Um, so, saying that it impoverishes people, I think that's important because poverty is the hot topic. The other thing is, we spend a lot of money on government, like I just said. You know, we tolerate a lot more taxation than we used to. So, hmm. I want to. So, what are we going to. So, but people have an association with the government spending as providing goods. Uh, I just want to, before I go on to that, I just want to skip back. I've got this great quote. I quote this in my book um, about how everything's become more expensive. Um, as, mid as, as late as the mid-1800s, a stagecoach journey from Paris to Bordeaux cost the equivalent of a clerk's monthly wages. The journey cost a day or so today, and it's 50 times as fast. Um, a half gallon of milk costs the average American 10 minutes of work in 1970, but only seven in 1999. He goes through, Don Boudreau's done this as well. This, this is Matt Ridley from The Rational Op Optimist. They both go through a bunch of examples of things that used to be expensive and now are much cheaper. And then he says, healthcare and education are among a few things that cost more in terms of hours work now than they did in 1950. What I say in my book, which, by the way, please download the book. I mean, this this presentation, um, I yeah, I'm really enjoying making it, but it's essentially a call for you to download the book so that you can see some of the things that are discussed in it. Not that everything you like. I'm covering a whole bunch of stuff that isn't in the book, obviously, and the book will cover a whole bunch of stuff that is. So maybe I should have just called this. Uh, episode instead of libertarians you can't beat something with nothing libertarians download my ubi book <laughs> right okay so 
what he mentions, he says, healthcare and education are among the few things that cost more in terms of hours work now than they did in 1950. Hmm, I wonder why that might be. I wonder. Matt, will you tell us why? Why is it that healthcare and education are among the few things that cost more in terms of hours worked now than they did in the 1950s? Any answer for that? Did you mention? Oh, wait, no, you didn't mention. Well, do you know what? I'm going to mention it. Healthcare and education are two of the sectors that the government is most involved in the provision of. And for anyone on the left who's tuned in, no. America does not have a free market in healthcare. 50% of healthcare spending in the US is by the government. Um, the, US, the government regulates every facet of healthcare in the US. For more, I've got a, I've got a book coming out. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna do a short book on healthcare sometime in the early next year. Mary Ruhr, has, who's been on this show before, has kindly contributed a chapter to the book already. It's mostly done. Um, I just need to finish the, the last few chapters, which are kind of kajunga to me because they're, they're ideas that I've been thinking of for about 10 years. And uh, it, it's been a, it was a challenge getting them down the way that I wanted them to come out. So I kind of took a break for it, from it for quite a long time or, um, to, to focus on writing other things and prepare myself. Probably going to be called "Why is healthcare so expensive in America?" So that's it's kind of apt. So here you go. Basically, education and healthcare are all government. That's why they're. That's why they've gone up in price. Um, now, if you want a moderate solution to that, then you just give people vouchers instead of. I'm not recommending that, obviously, but, you know, you can at least say to someone, look, why would you not want at least a partial privatization, like a voucher system where the government gives you vouchers, which you take to the school or hospital that you want? Because that puts an upward, the market puts an upward pressure on quality and a downward pressure on price. Um, okay, so... What happened? There's just no incentive to innovate when the government, when you've got a monopoly system. Like, there's no trial and error. A bunch of people should be trying things, and that's how they find out the cheapest and most efficient and best way to do it. It's not tooth and nail competition like the left think it is. Oh, tooth and nail competition. And I fucking hate it when the right say competition is good, blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, okay, but it's not because you're losing. You're losing when you do that. Competition is neither good nor not good. It's just neutral, right? What creates good quality products and services at a good price is the discretion of the user. I get to choose, free to choose, Milton Friedman. I get to choose what services I want. And I get to see what services get funded. That's what creates the upward pressure education system or healthcare. Well, I'm not none of that, but you know what I mean. So, okay. But the reason why I'm kind of taking so long about this point is actually I was trying to find a quote for you. 
Um, let's see. Please excuse me. Basically, yeah, here we go. Um, there's a couple of studies that did meta-analysis that found that the price of the price of government services are on average twice as expensive as the same services provided by the private sector. You can look them up. One is the sources of growth in public expenditures in the US, 1902 to 1970, that was released in 1977, and recent savings from privatization, a compilation of study by 1993, okay, twice as expensive. So there you can say the government impoverishes us. And if they go, well, what about the poor? Just say, well, okay, supposing I grant you that, would you be happy just for the poor to receive these services for free and for people who could afford uh, to be means tested? Just as a test, see what they say, right? Because maybe it's not, <laughs> maybe it's not really about the poor. Maybe they just say that, I don't know. That's why this is not leading this discussion. I've talked about house prices before, but I think this is a really big one. Now, there was a publication that said between 1971 and 2011, the price of housing went up in the UK by 4,255%. And when Bob Murphy wrote the foreword to my book, he said that sounded suspicious as fuck. And I kind of agree with him. But um, what we did was we looked at the Halifax House Price Index, which is the UK's longest running monthly house price series. And they only have figures dating back to 1983. Uh, and you'd say since 1983, house prices have gone up between six and seven times. So even if we just accept that, right, let's just accept six, let's accept five, okay? Imagine your house or your mortgage, your rent or your mortgage was 20% of what you're paying now. Everyone's was. I mean, we'd be bloody rich. Everyone would be. Wouldn't be any poverty if your house, if everyone's housing and rent, I don't know. I find it hard to, I find it hard to conceive if everyone was paying only a 20% of what they are now for their accommodation, that there would be, that, that that would cause so much economic growth that there wouldn't be any poverty. But also, you know, we can argue about what is poverty. I mean, are people in the West really impoverished? I mean, some are, but, uh, you know, not compared to people abroad. Now, I go into extensive analysis of why the government's responsible for that in the book. You've heard me speak about it before, so don't go on here. Plus, you know, I want to keep this under in law. So there's another another good reason. Lots of stuff to copy and paste. What I'm trying to say here is, you, you know, coming back, do you get why I'm tying this into you can't beat with something with nothing? I hope you do. Like, we need to be able to say, look, you would be richer. Appeal to people's self-interest. We've got no problems as libertarians saying the head and hand of the market, it's not out of the benevolence of the bacon that we get bread. A lot of Adam Smith for saying that, for writing that. It's not out of the benevolence of the baker we get bread. It's in his self-interest. So why is it when it comes to this stuff? We're more we're more than happy to say 
to people, self-interest is good because it's not out of the benevolence of the baker that you get bread. But then you expect people to be altruistic when it comes to government and think I should be able to give away my, you know, my privileges. Is there not, is it not more, tell me if I'm wrong, is it not more consistent with libertarianism to appeal to self, people's self-interest? Do you not, and people like believing they're being shafted, right? If you can get them interested, then you can talk, you know, we need to get them interested first. Later on, they might, like I, they might get more into the personal responsibility stuff. I don't know. I could talk to shit. Correct me if I'm wrong. But I think that because I, my appetite was wet. So you can start you're being shafted by the government and how much richer you would be. And people get interested. If you can get people interested in more conversations, because you, you start by speaking to their values. And then you introduce your own values. They're, they find you educational. They find you interesting to listen to. You're telling them about stuff they're interested in. A bond. And then you can start talking about, well, you know, equality isn't necessarily a bad thing. Maybe I'm getting it the wrong way around. Or maybe it varies from person to person. Maybe some people need the uh, head-cracking approach and just say, no, it's wrong, it's immoral, taxation is theft. That seems to work for some people. You know, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. That's how Penn Gillette said he was swayed. Uh, he had a friend that kept on telling him he was wrong and his views were immoral. And he made him have to question himself. I'm not, I'm not doubting that that can be an effective approach as well. But I just don't think it's effective to enough people. I think people have different personality styles. The Stefan Molyneux approach is good for people who, who can tolerate that. But lots of people just think he's arrogant and will not be interested in anything he has to say. And when he's, you know, and he's saying socialists are evil. And well, who, do you want to speak to someone who thinks you're evil? You want to listen to someone? Are they going to educate you? Especially when you think you're really well attention and care about the poor. So apply um, the the government um, appeals to people's self interest, but it seems bloody successful. Um, there's a few more things. I mean, I've never done quoting this on this show. I've quoted it a bunch of times. Um, the crony capitalism figure, uh, oh, bloody hell, um, for each $5.8 billion spent by America's 200 most politically active corporations between 2007 and 2012 on federal lobbying and campaign contributions, they got $741 in return in kickbacks and benefits. That's the Sunlight Foundation. Okay, I don't know the figures for the US, in the UK, 80 billion a year is spent complying with regulations, 1,200 per each man, woman, and child in Great Britain. Can you get someone to understand when you speak to them? And you say to them, look, do you agree, even if you think that some of the regulations are justified, do you agree that the business will have to account for that as a cost? Will they? Will they say yeah? Okay, so do you accept that some of that is going to lead to the products being more expensive? Well, do you? Um, and are they going to say, no, the shareholders will just have to take a cut? Then you have to you have to be able to explain. You know, you need to be able to explain, well, you know, it's not really up. It's 
it's already up to the business whether the shareholders take a cut or not. There's too many forces at work. Yeah, that they might take some of a cut in profit, but probably the, the products are going to be more expensive. And also, it reduces the incentive to... The higher the costs are, it reduces the incentive to produce those goods. We could go on and on about the, the facts, the fact factors involved in that. But can you discuss more, like, let me know, because I don't know what you guys want to hear. People assume, so people assume with these reams of red, can they understand that it pushes the price of products up to have those expenses in businesses? And can they understand that if people cause harm or loss by selling a faulty product, even if it's not unregulated, the common law, the most simple law, the law could just say it's illegal to sell a faulty product without a warranty. The most simple, you know, the most simple law, you do all these regulations. Can they understand that regulations limit competition? Can they? Uh, I don't know. You know, can you say, well, look, the big companies can afford accountants and lawyers and actuaries and uh, so forth to comply with regulations, and they can also uh, um, they can also afford lobbying, whereas the small ones can. So you're going to get you're going to have a coalescing of you know big crony capitalists. Can they understand that all that time? all that money paying lawyers and actuaries also pushes up the price of the product. Can they understand that those people, if they weren't filling out forms and pushing forms to comply with government regulations, they'd have to get a job making something. Can they understand that if all those lawyers and actuaries and um, accountants and blah, 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 if all those staff were making stuff, there would be more stuff. And according to the laws of supply and demand, if there's more stuff, that stuff becomes cheaper. Can you get people to understand this? Can you try and get back to me? Okay. I talk about occupational licensing in the book. And finally, I just talk about free trade. Now, you heard me say this before. If we could import goods and services from the cheaper, the poorest countries in the world, we would get cheaper goods and services, therefore the people at the bottom would be better off. You'd also have more money left over after buying those things to buy other stuff. Um, also, the people in those countries, poor countries, would get our money and develop faster. Now, once those countries develop, people move out of manufacturing into brain work. What happens then? They invent stuff. We would benefit from them getting out of that kind of economy into an information economy because more people would be inventing stuff and that could only be a good thing. So these are my thoughts on how we can say what libertarian has to offer, libertarianism has to offer people. I want to know your thoughts. If you're a listener, please jump on YouTube and tell me if there's anything that I've missed. Go to beyourselfandloveit.com forward slash UBI and download my free book and tell me what you think of that as well. Until next time, be libertarians. Don't be a lefty or a righty.